Well, I've entitled this uh, message Signs, but I could have just as well entitled it um, Grand Openings. Um, because what we have here is kind of the first miracle um, of Jesus' ministry. But more than just the first miracle, um, we have the beginning of um, we have the beginning of his ministry. We have the statement that he made. When I when I was thinking about grand openings, I went and looked at um, just looked up how to have a grand opening, because it struck me that even though this is the grand opening of Jesus's ministry, um, it is it's something that really doesn't strike me at all like the normal grand openings. And sure enough, here's some things that I found that you're supposed to do. You're supposed to develop a detailed plan. In other words, you're supposed to know what's going to happen, when it's going to happen, who's going to do it, why it's going to happen. All that is a detailed plan. And we look at this miracle and we see how unplanned it seemed, how out of timing it seemed. Then you're supposed to create as much promotion as possible to draw people and using contacts around you. You go and, and begin to promote the event. And we see that there's nothing like that here. Jesus is at an ordinary wedding. He's somewhere just with folks. He's done nothing to invite folks to his grand opening. This seems to just incur, occur along the, ro the road serendipitously, you know, as the need comes up. You're supposed to get the inv invitation to lift to important people, and you're supposed to communicate your grand opening through as many outlets as possible. And again, we see just Jesus doesn't seem to do that. Here he is beginning to launch the greatest event in all of history, the greatest ministry that's ever going to happen. And it seems to us to be just kind of, oh, I don't know, just kind of laissez-faire, ordinary, just kind of common. And yet John, as he describes um, Jesus' ministry, uses this and calls it a sign. A sign. And so for John, it must have been very important, and it points to something. Now, when we have grand openings, we have signs, right? There are signs everywhere that say, this is going to happen. And John says, this, is, this event at Cana is a sign that says, something is up here. And we might ask the question, what is it a sign of? And that, that's where my mind went, I went to. What is it that's being said in this miracle that's going to point to the rest of Jesus' ministry? And as I began to think about this, I saw how incredibly wonderful this miracle really is and how appropriate it is for what Jesus is going to do throughout his ministry, how it really tells us about who he is and what he's about in, in, in ways that if it had been another thing, we might, not, we might have missed. You know, I would have thought that if Jesus, if Jesus was going to do a, a um, grand opening, he would have started with something like the raising of the dead, right? I mean, that'll get a crowd. And then he would have put out flyers and said, Raising of the dead, Thursday, 2 o'clock, be there. Free sandwiches. <laughs> Something like that. You know, he would have gotten out all the news media he could. And, and, and not only that, he would have had it at an auspicious place, perhaps right at the steps of the temple or right in the middle of the marketplace. That's how grand openings are supposed to have. But that isn't Jesus. And as he begins to do this miracle, he's, he's telling us, He's painting a sign for us that says, ministry this way, follow me. It's a sign. And so what is this sign of? Well, obviously, the first thing that comes to mind, John's mind is, well, it's a sign of Christ's power. It's a sign that the ministry of Jesus is not just about words. It's not just about deeds. It's not about theology. It's not even just about community. All of those things are important. But in the center of his 
life is this power. This ability to change things, to make a difference. And that, that's important for us. Because when we come to think about our faith, we so often think about what we can do. We think about how we're to organize it. We're th we think about wh what, how we fund it, or how we, and we, we're tempted to develop strategies all, all the way around. And, and you, know, you know that I believe in strategic planning. <laughs> but it seems like Jesus has no strategic plan particularly, but what he does have is power. I remember that, um, this, you remember the story of the, the men that are caught at the gate that, are, that, are with that, that can't walk, they're lame. That's what we call them, lame. <laughs> when you can't walk, you're lame. And, and they come around and Peter and Paul say, um, say, they say to Peter and Paul, begging for silver, silver and some, some alms, and Peter and Paul say, we don't have any. Silver and gold have we none. But what we have we'll give to you. In the name of Jesus, get up and walk. And someone has quipped, you know, the church can't now say silver and gold have we none. Mm -hmm. But that neither can they say, in the name of Jesus, get up and walk. You know, none of the silver and gold was important <laughs> once they walked. And if we don't have silver and gold, maybe it's a blessing. Maybe it calls us to go back to the root of what this thing is about, which is a ministry filled at the center with God's power to change people's lives to make a difference. The second thing I notice is that Jesus comes uh, is his a sign of is his connection with ordinary people and ordinary life. As I said, if I were doing this grand opening, if I were planning it, I would have planned it for an auspicious place, a place where everyone would see and notice. And I would have planned it for auspicious people. But what we see here is a fairly ordinary event. Not that it was ordinary to those people. In fact, the point of the story is that this is an incredible occasion for these folks, right? This is a wedding. And if you know a little bit about Jewish history, and I, I'm just, I just want to interject this in here because weddings in Scripture are so important. <laughs> so if I give you this now, I hope you'll remember it when you read other wedding passages. The way a wedding happened in Jewish life is a, is a man and a woman were betrothed engaged. We, if you think about that, what story do you think of right away when I say they were betrothed? Mary and, Mary and Joseph, yes. And oftentimes that was an arranged event. It was arranged based on families, and so they would be betrothed. And a betrothal had the power of a wedding. In order to get out of betrothal, you had to have a legal document of divorce. It had the power of a wedding. It happened about a year before, and it involved a signed contract by the man who said that he would Usually the, um, the goats or the sheep or something were negotiated, how much he was going to give, and that he would provide for this woman. And over the next year, those two lived separately and were separated. And there was no intimacy that happened, but they got to know each other. And the other thing that happened is the man prepared the place for his new bride to come. What I'm saying is it's a pretty important thing. When the day of the wedding came, on which the wedding would be consummated, the it wasn't a wedding day, it was a seven-day experience. The crowds would come with the, from all over, and they would come and stay at the, at the place where it was to be held, the house. And at that place, of course, the bridegroom would provide for the food and drink for the whole family, <laughs> for everyone that came. Now, you think a wedding is expensive now. Can you imagine that seven days of guests at your house eating and drinking? 
And, and during that time, the bride and the groom would go off into seclusion and spend <coughs> private time together. And when she came back unveiled, everyone knew that the marriage had been consummated. There was more celebration. That's the way it was done. So folks ate and drank and, I don't know, played cards or danced <laughs> or whatever they did for seven days together. It was a party. It was a wonderful celebration. All the time you could imagine, you know, talking about the bride and groom, maybe chuckling back and forth, you know, wondering how things were going, that kind of thing. It was a wonderful occasion. And at the center of it was this whole eating and drinking thing, this feasting and, and celebration. So for them, it's no ordinary event. And to run out of wine in the middle of that is, is not a good thing. It's an embarrassment. It's shameful. And, and so for them, it's not an ordinary event. But in, in this grand scheme of things, <laughs> this is a fairly common event. People get married. They have weddings. And Jesus begins his first miracle in the ordinary places of life. It's in Cana, a place that we don't read about again in Scripture. A place that's just a little bit um, a distance from Nazareth, which is a little bit distant from nowhere. It's, it's a nowhere joint where they have this event. And it's an ordinary town. You know, it's, it's um, tempting for us to think about the things of God having to be grand and spectacular and the signs of God having to be done in grand and spectacular ways. Um, to think about the huge buildings, to think about the praise band with, with 17 tubos, <laughs> I don't know, you know what I'm getting at, and the electric guitars, a mini, and the, the, the thing that goes around the, the drummers, and you know, to think about the stage shows. I mean, we've kind of moved into that grand, exciting kind of thing, haven't we? And that God shows up in the, in the be healed kind of events. Mm -hmm. Nothing wrong. I'm not criticizing any of those. I'm really not. You know? But what I'm saying is that Jesus shows up in the ordinary events of life. And that will mark his ministry. That he goes from house to house with the little folks in the events of their lives and great things happen. Now again, for me, that is incredibly encouraging that Jesus is about the little guy and the little event. Because I'm a little guy. Well, you wouldn't know it, but I'm a little guy. <laughs> you know, this is a little church. We're, we're not the fancy schmancy smoke and thunder kind of place. But you know what? People do find healing here. There is miracle that happens here. There's people's lives who we can point to and say they've been transformed here. You know, I think about how important it is that, that children are nurtured here. How important that is. Ordinary, right? It's not like any, any child's going to get up and give it, well, Katie might, but give a testimony <laughs> about what God's doing for them. You know, it's not like they're going to preach a sermon. or, or anything. But it's in that ordinary events that God's power changes lives. And Jesus shows up in the ordinary. Meeting people where they are meeting people where they are. I have a favorite poem, and I, I almost didn't read it because it's fairly long, but I, it's so compelling to me. It's, um, it's probably one of my top three favorite poems, and I've got to read it because it's about the ordinary. I've read it one time before by a man named Sam Shoemaker, who was very active in the AA movement. He says this. It's called I Stand by the Door. Some of you may know it. I stand by the door. 
I need to go, I need not go too far in nor stay too far out. The door is the most important door in the world. It's the door through which men find their way to God. There's no use going way inside and staying there while so many are still outside. And they, as much as I, crave to know where the door is. And all that so many ever find is only the wall where a door ought to be. They creep along the wall like blind men. Excuse me. This touches me sometimes. With outstretched groping hands, feeling for a door, knowing there must be a door, yet they never find it. So I stand by the door. The most tremendous thing in the world is for men to find that door, the door of God. The most important thing a man can do is take hold of one of those blind groping hands and put it on the latch, the latch that only clicks and opens to the man's own touch. Men die outside that door. Starving beggars die in cold nights and cold cities in the dead of winter, die for what is within their grasp. They live on, what, they live on the other side of it, live because they have not found it. Nothing else matters. Comparing to help, compared to helping them find it and open it and walk in and find him. So I stand by the door. Go down, great saints. Go all the way in. Go way down into the cavernous cellars, way up into the spacious attics. It's a vast, roomy house, this house where God is. Go to the deepest, hidden chasms of withdrawal, of silence, of sainthood. Some must inhabit those rooms and know the depths and heights of God. And call outside of the rest about how wonderful it is. Sometimes I take a deeper look in. Sometimes venture a little further. But my place seems closer to the opening. So I stand near the door. There's another reason why I stand there. Some people got part way in and become afraid lest God and the zeal of the house will devour them. For God is so very great and asks all of us. And these people feel cosmic claustrophobia and want to get out. Let me get out, they cry. And the people way inside only terrify them more. Someone must be at the door to tell them that they're spoiled for the old life. They have seen too much. One taste of God, and God will only do. Someone must be watching for the frightened to tell them how much better it is inside. The people too far in do not see how near these are to leaving, preoccupied with the wonder of it all. Somebody must watch for those within the door and would like to run away. So for them, I stand by the door. I admire people who go way in, but I wish they would not forget how it was before they got in. Then they would be able to help people who have not yet even found the door with people who want to run away from God. You can go into deeply and stay too long and forget people outside the door. As for me, I shall stay, taste my place in the old accustomed place near enough of God, to God to hear and believe him, but not so far as to not hear them and remember that they, that they are there too. Where? Outside the door, thousands of them, millions of them, but more important for me, one of them, two of them, ten of them, whose hands I intend to put on a latch. So I stand by the door and wait for those who seek it. I'd rather be a doorkeeper, so I stand by the door. An incredible piece. It so marks what I see in Jesus. And one of the reasons I'm teary this morning, as I came here um, this morning, there were four different people who told me that they would be in church this morning. As I came in, I wasn't upset with them. I was, I was sad. Because I knew the reason they didn't come is they were afraid. 
And I thought about that. And, and as, I, as we were singing the first songs, the Lord began to minister to me. That's always embarrassing when he does that. I don't know why he always does that. You know, it's like, can I go home in my quietness in my home place and you tell me stuff? You know, but he's just really ministering and saying to me. And he said three things to me, things I didn't include in this sermon, but fit so well. The first thing is he said, is church attendance really the measure of your success? You know, one of those, one of them was from a high school that I went to this weekend, or this week. I spent, as I said, to three days in the high school talking about world religions and art class, being very politically correct, sharing the, the, tr the truths about each religion, saying things that you say, um, being affirming of every religion. Um, and when I could, saying something like, I think the distinctive nature of Christianity is the person of Jesus. He's different from anyone else. That's what drives me. Then I invited those, those youth to come and, and sit with me. I said, you know, I can't talk about my own faith here. That wouldn't be right. But if you'd like to hear about more about, you know, what I believe, then I'll meet you at Starbucks. I'll even buy you coffee. I had 10 students show up out of, out of probably 50 that I, well, maybe more than that, maybe 70. Not one of them claimed to be a Christian. I thought I was going to get all the Christians. I really did. I thought I was going to get Christian kids that wanted a Christian club. I got seekers. People that, kids that wanted to know Jesus. One of them said they'd be here this morning. You know, she's one of my four. And when, I, when someone asked me about it, I said, she's a friend. You know, it breaks my heart. It breaks my heart that the church is some place that has walls rather than doors for folks. And and that's not our fault necessarily. Sometimes it is. But I'm just saying, I, I'm just saying that when we look at this, this miracle of Jesus, what we see is him in, at the wedding. You know, him at the high school. Him at the workplace. Him in the ordinary places of life. And the second thing the Lord said to me as I'm praying, and this is all going on while we're singing, you know. I'm gl so glad we start with singing. I don't, if, if we don't do anything else, it gives me a chance to hear from the Lord, <laughs> you know. And, uh, and get over the, you know, how am I going to manipulate this service so that it's good, you know. I get over that stuff and think, let's worship instead. The second thing the Lord said to me is, you know, don't you know that if they're afraid, if they're angry, if they're anything, you can do everything you want to do, but only I can change a heart. You know, because my thought was, what could have I said to these people? Well, if I would have called them again, if I would have go said, I'll give you a ride, if I would have sent them a note, if I would have, if I would have, I, I, would have, I can live under that. And all that stuff is good and should be done. That's, I'm not denying that. But only God can change a heart. And the Lord said to me, do you, how, how are, <laughs> how's your prayer life for these people? Oh, yeah, I, I did say a word of prayer, you know. Don't you understand that the heart is hard to change? And this is going to take prayer. And I, I committed myself, I thought, right there. I said, you know what I need to do? I need to ask the church. And I'm not talking about the words. I'm asking ask you, the church, are there people here who, if I gave you a name, you would pray every day for them? That, they, that their hearts would be changed. Just the little change that says, I'm not afraid anymore. Just the re recognition that there's someone, as Sam Shoemaker says, by the door for them. And there is a latch and a way to get in. And they're not on the outside or don't have to be on the outside forever. Only I can change a heart. And then the last thing that the Lord said to me just was, just worship. 
just worship. Be with these people who love Jesus right here. And just for now, what you're supposed to do is just worship. Just be with me. So often we're, we're, we're so results-oriented and, and so future-oriented and so all of this stuff that, that we forget to just be in God's presence just like Jesus was there in those people's presence in the ordinary affairs of life as it is with people, servants running around and, you know, the roast beef burning or whatever, you know, and, and mama saying, Jesus, we got a problem. I love what Jesus says there because it's so ordinary, which is basically, Mom, <laughs> Mom. He says something else I'll talk about. He says, my time has not yet come. My hour has not come. I'll talk about that in a second as a sign. But my point is, the second of these signs is the way that Jesus would live his life in the ordinary places of life, and not particularly in the religious places, meeting people where they are with what they have. Do you, I missed something when I read this story many times. That is that they had the water pots that they had were the ceremonial water pots. What that means is that folks, before they ate, had to wash their hands. Jews washed their hands a lot. And so they had these seven water pots that had 20 to 30 gallons each in them. That's a lot of hand washing, you know? <laughs> But those were set aside for this religious ceremony of washing your hands. You know what Jesus does? He says, on the religious ceremony, people need wine. Isn't that like Jesus as you see him? The religious ceremonies are okay, that's fine, you know. But people need wine. People are here. It's a, Mom has asked me to do something. So if they'll listen to me, We'll do something about this. And it is the way Jesus would live his life. On the way, as we read on Wednesday night, on the way to see Jarius, uh, 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 Jarius he stops for a, for a woman who's bleeding, who he should have never even talked to because she's bleeding. She pulls on him. He says, I think power's gone out of me. He stops to minister to this woman who has this, this problem that's considered unclean. On his way to see, takes time out of his way to see the high official. Because that's not what matters. The people matter. That just kind of mark his life of who he was. Then thirdly, it is a sign of his love, of celebration, and of abundance. It is amazing that it's at a wedding, and it's at a festival, and that it's wine. You know, once you wrap your head around that, that, that tells you so much, right? You know, now if, if you're like a fundamentalist Baptist, and you might say, well, it really wasn't wine. It was, um, you know, grape juice and the best grape. But, but I'm sorry. The story makes no sense unless it's wine. <laughs> you know, and it was wine, and they were going to get drunk. And that bothers me. Doesn't it bother you just a bit? You know? <laughs> It bothers me. It, 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 it's not that rel religious enough. Dang it. Jesus, straight up. <laughs> Get in the box. But I think the key is found when the steward says, what is this? You save the best for last. It tells us that Jesus just didn't make any old wine. This isn't a ripple. <laughs> He's not going to fill it in with, with, you know, Boone's Farm. This is good stuff He's making. <laughs> He saved the best for life. Charles Spurgeon has a wonderful um, sermon built around this that has really nothing to do with the text, but it's all true anyhow. And he makes this comment. He says, the, the lie of the world is that it starts with something looking wonderful. 
The wine is good, and as you go through life, you find out that that wine isn't that good after all. The, the shininess of the world, you know, it's so wonderful what the devil puts in front of us. Whether it's, whether it's wine or, or money or sexuality or um, ideas or our own futures. You know, put the shiny thing up there. It looks so good. And then he says, the world stuff begins to tarnish. But then he makes the comment, he says, but God's way is always hard when we look at it at first. And gets better and better and better. And he, he points out something. He says, you know, we know more than the prophets did. We have more revelation before us than the Apostle Paul did. I was, I was scratching my head about that. This, God is intended for life to get better and better and better. He saved the best for last, is what Spurgeon points to. Interesting. You may or may not fully buy into that, but the, but the truth is, is that this is a sign of what Jesus is about, because Jesus defines his own ministry by saying this, I have come that they might have life and have it in abundance. His purpose, as he sees it, is to bring life. Not to bring dead old stuff, not to bring old stodgy stuff, you know, but to bring life into folks. To make their lives better. And as I was even meditating and the Lord was speaking to me, I thought, you know, the measure of ministry isn't how many people come to church. Or even how many people sign up or tithe or make the thing work. Or even people that they have great religious experiences. The measure of ministry, the success is, is their life, is their life better? Is their richness? Now I'm not saying that all the circumstances of life are better because that's not true. You can hear... Per Preachers preach that. <laughs> you know, if you just get saved, everything will go fine. That ain't true. I know it's not true. But I do know that life gets better as we walk with the Lord. Is our lives, are, 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 is our ministry touching people? Are we touching people as Jesus so that their lives changed and got better? I have to admit that as I said that, I thought of people whose lives had come to the church and honestly had not gotten better. They were more saddled with responsibility. They were more saddled with guilt. They were more saddled with lots of things. But they didn't meet this Jesus. They met religion, but they didn't meet this Jesus. And they didn't walk with him. Because he makes lives better. The fourth sign of his is, his, is the sign of his purpose. And I come back to that statement that he says to his mother. Mom, my hour has not yet come. Did it, that's, is that the statement for you in this that kind of jumps out? That it, it's one of the things that bothers me. It's like this, this story has several places where there's little stones in your shoe. You know, one is that they're going to get drunk. <laughs> that's one. If you really think about the story, that's a stone in your shoe. But the, and the other one is the way he treats his mother. Mom, you know. Well, or actually, he says, woman. Okay, I've done the Greek study. I know that woman is a tone of endure and endearment. That's what we, you know, you hear, you hear um, some older folks, especially southern folks say, they'll refer to their wife in enduring ways and say, mother, you know, it's a way of honoring. Well, I know that about that, and it is that. And yet still, you can't get away from the tone here, right? My hour has not yet come. Until you start to look what John has done in the book of the, the John. That phrase, my hour has not yet come, or my hour has come, appears seven times. And all of a sudden, when I know that, my antenna go up.
because I know that John over and over again uses seven things happening in order to say something. He uses seven I am sayings, for instance. He uses seven signs. And here he uses this phrase, for the first time, my hour has not yet come. Three times, um, three other times, Jesus says to his disciples, my hour has not yet come at various points. See, I thought what this phrase was, was that he was saying, it's not time for me to do miracles yet. That isn't what he's saying, and it'll become apparent. Four times in all, he uses, my hour has not yet come. The next time he says, my hour is coming, then in the garden he says, my hour is here, and then at the cross he says, this is the hour. So Jesus, this is a sign of Jesus' purpose. The fact that Jesus comes to a wedding knowing that his purpose is to die. Isn't that amazing? That, that John has so, so crafted this story to let us know that that miracle is a sign of Jesus' dying. That even some commentators think that the, that the water turning into, into wine was a, was a picture of the wine turning into his blood. That Jesus is saying, that in essence, what Jesus is saying is, this isn't the thing that gives life. That is the thing. That cross is the thing that brings life. I have a purpose. My purpose is my death and resurrection. That's what's going to bring you life. And so Jesus, in his ministry, his whole ministry is focused and leads to the cross. It's such a hard concept to get that many liberal, um, liberal interpretators miss it entirely. And there's even been folks that said, you know, that questioned, did Jesus know about the cross? Did he even think about the cross? And, and they look back at the Apostle Paul as interpreting his whole ministry as about the cross and mistakenly interpreting it. But as we read the Gospels, if, as we read them, it's very clear to me that Jesus is moving towards his death because he understands that that's where life is going to be birthed at in his own death. Isn't that amazing? And so, as I close, I, I want to look at one last thing. And that is the signs in our lives and how we respond to them. Because like that, that miracle at Cana, what God does in our lives so often is not in the bang, bang, boom, boom, smoke-filled voice of God shouting from us kind of moments. It's done in the everyday life of relationships, for instance, that God speaks to us, just like the wedding. It's done in how in finding the little things that we celebrate and give thanks for. It's finding the small places, in the unobtrusive places, and it's found in the in in God working in ways to help us when He didn't have to do that. Aren't you amazed by this story, by the way? In that in that regard, you know why does Jesus do this miracle? He does it as a sign, John says, but on a human level. He does it because they've run out of wine. <laughs> and he wants to be a part and he wants to help. You know, this is, this is kind of an everyday miracle. That's how God shows up for us so often, isn't it? Everyday miracles. And we, like the folks gathered, can receive that in a number of different ways. We can be like Mary, who looks at him and expectantly, right? Mm -hmm. Comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, nudge, nudge, wink, wink. We've run out of wine. What are you going to do? We can live like that. 
We can live in a way that says, God, here's my life. What are you going to do today? Show me. And then she says, the other part of it, she says to the servants, whatever he tells you to do, do it. That, that, that combination of expectancy that God's going to do something and obedience to receive it. We can live like that. We can live like, maybe some of us are like the stewards and other people are like the steward who they bring the stuff to and they say, he doesn't even know what it is, but he recognizes it and he begins to seek. We can live like the disciples and we can say, and because it says, and they saw it and believed. We can go back and say, what has God done? All of those things are things, ways that we can respond to what God does in our lives and put signs in our lives. And, and so this is not only the beginning of Jesus' ministry, but it's a picture of how you and I will receive Jesus. Will we have the expectancy? Will we have the obedience? Will we have the seeking heart? Will we believe and trust? That's when God meets us and miracles happen. Let's pray together. Give us hearts, Lord Jesus, to see your power changing lives and doing miracles, even in the small, ordinary places that we live and move to know that you're there as well. Give us hearts to expect that you will show up and to believe that you do. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together as we confess our, confess our faith. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen, we believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and our salvation, he came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he became me. Did I know that you watched him? Or... Because I know Tim did. Tim and Anna did. Yeah.